As we look at this chart, we can see why we say that self is a relative problem. You know, if someone threatens or happens to mess with our companionship, our prestige, someone threatens our self-esteem, uh, then we, we have a resentment. Uh, if someone messes with our security or our sex life or, or any area, we might have a fear. Uh, when these, one of these things can get out of control, they cause us to harm another person. You know, every problem that man has ever had is rooted in self. You know, and, and I can look at this chart and as Bill laid it out, not only for us, but every, there are a lot of problems that people have problems in the world, not just we alcoholics. There are millions of people today with all different kinds of problems. I think it's a very broad statement, but he said all the problems in the world that man has, we can find there the root cause of it on that chart, regardless of what it is. Now, we, I always use the illustration I was talking about a while ago about the guy in the penitentiary. He says he's in there for stealing. Okay, that's his problem. What is, the root of his pro what is the root of his problem? Why did he steal? Did he steal for material security? Or was he going to use the money to build his self-esteem? Or was it for companionship? It could have been for sex. One part of self had to be out of control to put him in conflict with other people. So it's the root of all human problems. It's just that simple. Self is the root of all human problems. So... As we move into now, if we can understand this, then we, I think we can get better into this decision and what this decision is all about. Okay, yeah. Charlie's behind on his choice. <laughs> Blaming it on him. Okay. As we come to this decision, uh, we looked at the first step. Now we're going to look at the second step, the solution. The solution is power, and as we said, on the left-hand side of the chart, you see the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the group, whether it be the whole or your group or all of us together. And in that fellowship, those who have recovered, the old member, he supports the new member. It's totally impossible for that new member not to draw hope and support and he can come to believe by looking at the old people, who older members who have recovered. And we say older members, we're talking about those who have had the spiritual experience, not the ones that's been sitting around there. <laughs> uh, now, also, the older member is going to draw strength through helping the new member. So that is a support group, and that is the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And why in that group it's totally impossible for the person not to become to believe that he can do the same thing. And so he becomes one and he begins to investigate and he goes over and picks up the simple spiritual tools laid at our feet, which are the 12 steps. And as a result of taking these steps, he has a spiritual experience which produces a personality change uh, sufficient to recover from alcoholism. And, and so we can see the power of the fellowship and the power of the 12 steps which produce the spiritual experience. These are two parts of the power. Now once, once he uh, has this uh, spiritual experience, then he can go over and become an old member. Now we have come into the decision. We have the problem, which is lack of power because, caused by the allergen obsession. 
we have the solution, which is power, the power of the fellowship, and the power of the spiritual experience. Now, once we have those things, then we have a decision. We have a choice. We can have one or the other. And it says we stand at the turning point. And we have a decision. Uh, we can continue and disbelieve and continue drinking and end results in sanity or death. Or we can believe and accept spiritual help and find sanity and sobriety. And this is where we are. We stand at the turning point, and we have an opportunity to choose or to make a choice. And step three is a decision, a decision based on one and two. This is our decision. We can go either one way or the other. Um, and this is, and if we make this decision, then we turn over our will. Now, you know, if self-will is the problem and self-will is, is given by God, then only God can correct self-will. We cannot correct self-will. We're going to begin on page 62. Selfishness and self-centered, that we think is the root of our troubles. Some part of self out of whack is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but invariably we find that sometimes in the past <clears throat> we have made a decision based on self which placed us in a position to be hurt. It appears, before we take the inventory, it appears that other people are doing this to us. <laughs> it really does. But once we look at it, we're going to find that we made a decision based on self, and then they retaliated against us. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making, and the, they arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run right, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. There often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us have moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we, through, <clears throat> neither could we reduce ourselves in as much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. And that's the really rub of it. We find out, you know, that the great difficulty is trying to control self-will with self-will. <laughs> No, God made self-will, so only God can correct self-will. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we have to quit playing God, and that's all we are doing as humans. We're just playing God in a God-directed world. It didn't work. Not only do we selfish, self-centered alcoholics direct our own lives, we also try to direct the lives of everybody around us. Yeah. We play God not only with ourselves, but we try to play God in everybody else's life, too. And let's face it, it really is a God-directed world. 
And those of us that are directing our lives and everybody else's life, we just play in God. We really aren't God. Next, we decided that hereafter in the drama of life, God was going to be our director. He got his word right back in there, didn't he? He said, director. He made him take it out of how it works. But within two pages, he's got it back in. <laughs> okay. He is a principal. We are his agents. He is a father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple. But this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. And again, as we said earlier, he's going back to the little picture he was painting. In step one, he said, wilderness was the foundation. In step two, he says, believing was the cornerstone. And now he's telling us what we're building, an arch. Up to this point, we didn't know. And in this arch, he said, step three is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch to which we passed to freedom. And remember, when they build their arches, they would stack all the stones and they would come together at the top. And the very last stone, the stone in the top, where all the stone leaned against the, the very stone in the middle was the keystone. And it supported the whole gate. So step three is the supporting stone, and we are building an arch through which we shall walk to freedom. And we get in step five, we're going to put in a couple more stones, and we're going to come back and review that. So when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new empire being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little, <coughs> our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we contributed to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, and we discovered we could face life successfully, and when we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fears of today, tomorrow, the hereafter, we were reborn. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before, before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step of the understanding person such as our wife, best friend, our spiritual advisor. In the earlier days, they took this step with another human being, and it still could be a good idea. But it's better to meet God alone than one who might misunderstand. The wording, of course, was quite optional so long as we expressed the idea of voicing it without reservations. He says, this was only a beginning. Though if honestly and humbly made, and effect sometimes a great one is felt at once. Now, step three is just the beginning, and sometimes we have a great effect, and we can associate that with the spiritual experience, but in most cases, we don't get a great result from step three. It's just the beginning. Step three is the first step in recovery. You know, there is not anyone in any recovery in the first two steps. 
But step three is the first step in the recovery program. So we don't get a lot of effect out of step three. And if we study the steps, we're going to find later that we'll get a lot more out of step five than we do step three, because step five is an action step. And we really haven't done anything in step three. We just made a decision to do something. So it's just the beginning. And if we have made this, uh, step three is real simple and real easy. And all we have to do is to make a decision to turn out well in our life with care of God. Now, as Charlie said, this is, it has no permanent effect unless we go to work. Now, the only way we can really turn our will in our life with the care of God is through steps four through nine. We have just made a decision to take that action. As Joe talked a while ago about the story of Adam and Eve in the other big, big book, and he talked about when God threw them out of the garden, God also made a deal with them as they left. He made a covenant with them. He said, since you've exercised self-will and you've done your thing, then I'm not going to take care of you anymore. You'll have to leave and take care of yourself. He said, I only provide for those that follow my directions. But he said, I'll make a deal with you if you ever get tired of trying to run your own show and you want me to take it over again, then give self-will back to me. And he said, I love you so much, I'll let you suffer and die from it if you want to. But if you're willing to turn to me and give it back and follow my directions again, then I'll be glad to have you back in the garden, and I'll provide you with food, clothing, shelter, and everything you need, because you will again be following my directions. Now, we're only going to operate on one of the two. We're either going to operate on self-will or God's will, because there isn't any other kind for us to operate on. And we're not going to operate on both of them at the same time. And the only way that God will take my will back and direct my will, my thinking, and my action is for me to freely give it back to him. And step three is the beginning of that effort to give self-will back. And nobody wants to do it until they see the reason for it. And nobody wants to do it until they absolutely have to. Because it brings fear. We don't know what's going to happen if we do. Uh, my golly, if we don't live the way we've been living, what are we going to do for excitement? Uh, what would life be like if God directed our thinking? And fear holds us back from doing this. Pride sometimes keeps us from doing it also. But if we're really tired of hurting, and if we're really ready to make that decision, and if we try a little prayer similar to the one in the book, then we have already made a beginning toward turning self-will back to God. At the bottom of page 63 it says, Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. The first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to cause these conditions. Now, it seems as though all my life there's been those two wills, Charlie's will and God's will. And it seems as though I could always have been operating on God's will, but I never did. I always operated on my will. And the outgrowth of self, selfishness, self-centeredness, 
There's been certain, certain things within my mind that has developed there that blocks me off from God's will. And before I can give it back or before God can take it back, those things will have to be removed from my mind. Now, the decision I made is not going to have much effect unless I can find those things that block me off and do something about their removal. And, of course, we all know we're going to do that through a process called Step Four. And I doubt if there's any other step anywhere in the book that has had so much confusion, so much misinformation, as we have in Step Four. Now, people are always asking, well, how long should I wait to do Step Four? Should I be sober three months or six months or nine months or a year? Uh, we heard an AA member who is a counselor in the field telling people the other day that you ought to wait a minimum of two years before you take Step Four. And I said, what are they going to do if they get drunk during that two years? <laughs> Bill puts a time element on when you ought to take step four. He says, unless followed at once by strenuous effort to face and be rid of those things in ourselves which have been blocking us, and at once makes sense. Four always did follow immediately after three. <laughs> so according to the book, step four should be taken as soon as we take step three. I think another big problem with step four is we didn't understand how Bill laid it out for us to do it in a big book. And the way it's laid out and the wording he's used sometimes is very confusing. So in our confusion, not knowing how to take step four, we read over in step five something about all our life story. So many of us jumped on that and began to write a step four inventory by writing our life story. We used a statement in five to determine what to do in four. I did that. I must have thought it was fairly important because I don't know. I wrote 75 or 80 or 85 pages. Big deal. And I took it to a guy and he read it and he looked at it and he said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no, it isn't. And he tore it up and he threw it in a waste paper basket and he said, well, you'll never have to be that way anymore. And I didn't learn anything at all from that. Because, you see, everything I had written down, I already knew. I learned nothing new from writing my life story. And today I realize 95% of my life story really doesn't have anything to do with my alcoholism. The fact I was born in 1929, I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I graduated from high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma when I was 17 years old, I don't think it's got anything to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I went in service right after that, I don't think has anything to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I married a beautiful young lady named Maxine when I was 21 years old, I don't think it's got anything to do with my alcoholism. But what the 95% that did not have anything to do with my alcoholism, what it really did was effectively cover up the 5% that did. So I could see nothing in that life story that helped me at all. So again, in our confusion, somebody in Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. And we took it and we combined it with the big book, and we got more confused yet. And then somebody in Dallas wrote a four-step inventory guide. We took it, the Minnesota guide, in the big book and got more confused yet. I have no idea how many inventory guides are going around the country today. 
You know, when I saw one not long ago that had 26 pages to it. And I'll guarantee if you wasn't crazy as hell before you took it, you would be when you got through with it. I mean, it was something else. And all the time, the instructions have been here in the book. But they are so simple that we people with these intellectual alcoholic minds looking for something more complicated have entirely overlooked them. And we just never could see how he did it. I think another thing that makes it confusing is page 65, which is the example, is already filled out. <laughs> and we weren't for sure the procedure he followed to fill it out. So again, in our confusion, we either try something that doesn't work or we don't do anything. And every day we procrastinate and put off is another day we stay restless, irritable, and discontented. It's another day we are probably a little closer to going back to taking a drink. I think another reason we don't do it is we would like to fancy ourselves as perfectionists. And we would like to wait until we know we can do step four 100% right before we do it. Now, if that's our attitude, then what we're saying is, well, we'll wait till we get well, and then we'll do step four. You know, the purpose of the steps is to get us well. And if we wait till we get well before we do them, we probably never will do them or get well either one. Fear blocks us off. Sometimes we think all we're going to deal with is a list of dirty, filthy, nasty things, and we don't want to look at them, and we sure don't want anybody else to look at them. And in step five, it said we're going to have to show this stuff to somebody else. So fear blocks us off also. And really, what we'd like to say today is step four isn't that hard to do. Done the way the big book says to do it. It's a fairly simple procedure, and there really isn't anything to be afraid of. Because we're going to talk about a few basic things that are common to all human beings, and we're going to share those things with another human being and God, and we're going to try to do something then about getting rid of them. I think if we're to understand four, as the book says, we've got to buy into this idea that Bill loves to paint pictures in our mind with words, and he loves to use parables, and he loves to make comparisons one word with another. All good teachers do that. You know, we had a teacher who lived a couple thousand years ago that was really good at this. And when he wanted to teach something to the shepherd, he talked to him about sheep. He told him a little story about sheep and got his point across. If he wanted the fisherman to learn the same thing, he went over and talked to him, not about sheep, but he told him the same story, only this time it was about fish. And he would get his point across. Bill does that to us in the big book. Remember, he talked about the great ocean liner, the moment after shipwreck. Back in 1939, that kind of travel was familiar to people. And the Titanic was still fresh on people's minds, and he used that little story to make a point. And he's going to do the same thing here. He's going to talk to us about a certain kind of inventory. He's going to talk about a business inventory. And he's going to assume that you and I know about a business inventory. And when he gets through talking about the business inventory, he's going to turn right around and say, we did the same thing with our lives. 
In other words, we're going to take an inventory like a business does and like he tells us a business does. And if we could once see that, then step four becomes relatively simple. And if we can understand his words as he wrote them, I think it'll be easy to see. The first thing he says is, therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. If you would, and you have a sheet of paper there, and you have a pencil, you might take a pencil and make a line right down through the center of a sheet of paper. Normally we do it on the blackboard, but the blackboard is not here. That's what I was back here looking for a while ago and couldn't find one. Just make a line separating the sheet into two, two parts. And on, on the right-hand side of that sheet, up at the top of it, just write personal inventory. And on the left-hand side of your sheet, up at the top of it, write business inventory. And your sheet split into two pieces, business inventory and personal inventory. Now we look at the word inventory first. There's a lot of confusion about this as to whether it should be a written inventory, a mental inventory, should you tell it from behind the podium, what should you do? Well, if we go to the dictionary and look the word inventory up, we'll find it defined as a written list of items. There's no other kind of inventory. A written list of items. A lot of times you say you go in your kitchen and you, and you look at your shelves to see what you need to buy at the store. And you come out of the kitchen and somebody says, what have you been doing? You say, I've been in there inventorying my food stocks. No. If you didn't write them down, all you've been doing is in there looking around. <laughs> A written list of items. Now, immediately he jumps from that business inventory, I mean that personal inventory, to a business inventory. He said, therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. And then he says, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. I think his first comparison is this, that whether it be a business inventory or a personal inventory, if we don't take one, we'll probably go broke. And I think we know that in a business. If you had a, a business where you were selling ladies' shoes or, or men's watches or bicycles or whatever it is, if you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know where you stood. You, know, you wouldn't know what's been stolen out of your store. You wouldn't know what's been sold out of your store. You wouldn't know what you need to reorder to replace those items. You wouldn't know what's become damaged and nobody wants to buy it and you need to put it on sale to get it out of there. You wouldn't know what has become out of style and nobody wants to buy it, so you've got to put it on sale to get it out of there. And if you don't inventory once in a while, you're going to end up with empty shelves over here and nothing to sell, and shelves over here filled with damaged and unsaleable goods that nobody wants to buy. And you're probably paying interest on borrowed money for these, and they're not turning, and they're not moving, and every day you're losing your money. Well, under those conditions in a business, surely, surely, we can all see where they would go broke. 
Now, you and I have a business, too. And our business is the most important business in the world to us. And it's the business of finding a way to live where we can be sober and peaceful and happy and free so we don't have to go back to drinking. And for us, going back to drinking is going broke. And if I could find a way to live where my thoughts would be with peace of mind, happiness, and serenity, rather than being restless, irritable, and discontented, then I probably would be successful in my business. But if I don't inventory my business once in a while, I really don't know what I need to get rid of either. I don't know what's up here in my head that's damaged and unsaleable. I don't know what's going out of style. And under those conditions, I might go broke in my business of staying sober. I think that's his first comparison. Business or personal, if we don't inventory once in a while, we'll probably go broke. Now then, he says, taking a commercial inventory. Now, Dad Burnham, he could have said business again. God, he don't like to repeat himself with the same words. Instead of business, this time he says commercial. Same deal. He says, taking a business in a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. In other words, he's going to go in there and he's going to find out the facts about the stuff in his store. And when he finds those facts out, he's going to face those facts. He's going to face them. He's not going to try to make excuses. He's not going to say, well, this isn't damaged quite that bad. We'll keep it a while. He's not going to say that nobody wants to buy this because, after all, his pride's involved. He bought it and put it in the shelf in the first place. He's going to find out the facts about that stuff, and he's going to be willing to face those facts. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock in trade. Now, we know what his stock in trade is. His stock in trade is what he's got to sell in that store. That's the bicycles, that's the shoes, that's the watches, that's whatever he's got. So there's four key terms used here that I think we need to put down on that piece of paper under business inventory. Let's write down first, under business inventory, fact-finding. And then underneath that, let's write fact-facing. And underneath that, let's write truth. And underneath that, we'll write stock in trade. Stock in trade. I hope this will work. We've never tried to do it exactly like this. I don't know what's going to happen. So he used some key terms in the business inventory. This fellow has gone on a fact-finding, fact-facing effort to discover the truth about those items in his store. Okay. He really needs to face the truth. Because if they're damaged and they're unsaleable, golly, it is going to keep on costing him money. And if he holds on to them, he'll probably go broke. If he can face the truth and get them out of there and replace them with new items, maybe he'll stay in business. Now, he tells us one object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods and to get rid of them promptly and without regret. 
In other words, as he takes this fact-finding and fact-facing process, trying to discover the truth about the stock-in trade, he's really going to be looking for those goods that are damaged. Nobody wants them. He's going to be looking for those that are unsaleable. Nobody wants them. And he wants to get them out of his store promptly and without regret. He doesn't need so much to look at the good items in stock because people are going to buy those. But the bad ones have to go so they can be replaced with good items in stock. Now, I think everybody could see that quite easily. His next statement is, we did exactly the same thing with our lives. In other words, in our personal inventory, we're going to do exactly what he told us to do in the business inventory. Now, watch the words in step four. In step four, he said we made a searching. Let's write under personal inventory and directly across from fact-finding the word searching. I believe they mean basically the same thing. He said we made a searching and fearless. Now let's write the word fearless directly across from fact-facing. I think we'll find they mean basically the same thing. He said we made a searching and fearless moral. And there is where we went wrong. Because <laughs> we saw the word moral and we said, uh-oh, there's that list. And I'm not going to look at it, and I'm sure as hell not going to let anybody else look at it. I don't know what all Bill Wilson knew, but I know one thing. This guy understood the English language. And if he had wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty things, I believe he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory. He didn't say that. He said moral. Now, I go to the dictionary with the word moral, and I find out it means one meaning of the word is truth, is truth. So let's write moral across from truth. Basically, they mean the same thing. He said we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Ourselves. Now, the only stock in trade you and I have got in the business of staying sober is ourselves. So we're going to write that across from stock in trade. Now, the only part of myself that has anything to do with my staying sober is my thoughts. See, my body doesn't have anything to do with it. It's how I think that determines whether I drink or not. We all know that stinking thinking leads to drinking. Now, let's face it, up here in my head, I like to view my head as a little store. In this business of living and in this business of sobriety, the only thing I've got to trade off in my business is the way I think. Now, let's face it, some of these thoughts up here on this display case are probably damaged. Some of them I got back here in the storeroom in back are probably out of style. Some of them over here on the left-hand side, I damn sure don't want you to see them. Some of those thoughts in there are damaged and unsaleable, and those are the very things that block me off from God's will. If I can inventory my store, my mind, 
and make a searching and fearless moral inventory of my mind, I can find those things that block me off from God's will, that causes me to go broke, that damage an unsaleable thinking, and I can do something about its removal. Now, after it's removed, then God will take my will back if I'm willing to give it to him. But he can't take it back as long as those things are blocking me off. And if I can get them out of my head, then he can start directing my thinking. But as long as those damaged and unsaleable goods are in my store, then God cannot direct my thinking. Now just think. If the owner of the business is going to be successful tomorrow, it's not dependent on what he had in his store 20 years ago. Nor is it dependent on what he's going to put in his store 20 years in the future. Whether he goes broke tomorrow or not will be determined by his stock in trade in his store today, right now. Now, in my business of staying sober, the way I thought 20 years ago is not going to have anything to do with whether I go broke tomorrow or not. What I'm going to put in there 20 years in the future has nothing to do with whether I go broke tomorrow or not. Whether I go broke tomorrow or not, get drunk tomorrow or not, is based upon how I think right now, today. So I'm going to do the same thing that the business inventory does. I'm going to review my stock in trade as of right now, today. And it's a very simple process. You see, my book is getting ready to tell me that not only have I been spiritually ill, I've been mentally ill and I've been physically ill. And it says when the spiritual malady is overcome, the other two will automatically straighten out. Now, to see my spiritual illness, it's going to be just like the other two. You know, if I'm physically ill and I go to a doctor, my illness, whatever it is, displays certain symptoms. And the doctor reads those symptoms and makes a diagnosis of my illness and gives me some kind of prescription and hopefully then I can get well. If I'm mentally ill, I'll go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, maybe, and that mental illness will display certain symptoms. And that psychologist or psychiatrist will read them, make a diagnosis, and then hopefully prescribe so I can get well. Okay, spiritual illness is the same way. Spiritual illness always displays certain symptoms. Anybody that is blocked off from God, anybody that's living on self-will, anybody that's running the show themselves, a selfish, self-centered person, they are spiritually ill because they're blocked off from God, and they will always display three symptoms. One is resentment. You show me a selfish, self-centered human being, and I'll show you one that's matter in hell all the time. Oh, yeah, the world's not treating them right. Damn them, damn her, and damn all of them. I'll show them. And on and on and on and on. <laughs> show me a selfish, self-centered person, and I'll show you one scared to death all the time. Can't depend on God. Can't depend on other people. Don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know when it gets there it won't be worth nothing, whatever it is. And we just run scared continually. Show me a selfish, self-centered person, and I'll show you one that's hurting other people all the time. Based on anger and based on fear and based on these basic instincts of life, they're always overdoing, they're always demanding more than their fair share, and they're always hurting other people. And they feel shame and guilt and remorse because of that. 
and fear associated with it. My book is getting ready to tell me that three things block me off from God's will. Three kinds of thinking. Three damaged and unsaleable goods. And it's going to show me that resentment is one, fear is one, and the harm's done to other people. And it's going to show me that if I will look at those things, see where they come from, determine what to do about them, it'll then show me how to get rid of them, and it'll show me how to be able to live without them. Now, if resentment blocks me off from God's will and I can get rid of it and keep it out of my head, then God could enter my head. If fear blocks me off from God's will and I can get rid of it and keep it out of my head, then God can enter my head. If the shame, guilt, and remorse associated with harms to other people blocks God out of my head and I can get rid of that, then God can enter my head. But he can only enter when those are gone. So we're going to look in our inventory at those basic three things. And the book is complete. It's going to show me how to look at them. It's going to show me how to analyze them. It's going to show me how to get rid of them. And it's going to show me how to keep them from coming back in the future. Now, God will not allow a vacuum anywhere. There's always something rushing in to fill up vacuums and voids. If resentment leaves my mind, then that damaged and unsaleable goods will be gone, and it will be replaced with a new item for sale. And the only thing that will replace resentment is the opposite. Love, patience, tolerance, goodwill toward other people. If fear leaves my head, then something has to replace it. And the only thing that can replace it is courage. If the harm's done to other people, the guilt and the remorse leaves my head, then it's going to be replaced by consideration and love for other human beings. And the amazing thing about it is, those good things come automatically. You see, if God dwells within every one of us, then all of the good things of God's there also. But those things have been obscured in my life, in my chase for money, power, prestige, and sex. I became a very self-centered, resentful, fearful, harmful human being, and the good qualities never could come to the surface. But as the character defects are removed, for the first time in my life, the good qualities can come to the surface automatically. I find I didn't have to go read any other books. I find I didn't have to look for those things. They automatically come when the old defects are gone. Now, if we're going to look at resentments, Let's find out first, Joe, what is a resentment, anyhow? Resentment is our number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem, all forms of spiritual disease. We've not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. In looking at resentments, I think it's to say, first we have to understand what is a resentment. The word itself is self-explanatory. We say it and we mean it, but we have to get in nitty-gritty what is it to resent. And we always see the word re, R-E, on the front of a word, like repeat, replay. You know, we understand that means again. That means replay means to play again. And so re means again. And the second part of the word comes from the word centaur which means to feel. 
So resentment means to feel again. Now, the way this thing works is, 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 you know, everybody's got self. That's what makes it bad. You got one, I got one. Everybody's got one of these things. Sometimes because sometimes another human being, maybe their self-esteem gets out of control. Uh, maybe part of their self is threatened and they are a little upset. And while they are sick, they will hurt me. And I'm hurt. You know, people will only hurt each other when they are sick. And they will hurt me, and that's a wrong on their part. Now, as soon as they hurt me, and it's a wrong, then I, I go over to the next room and I replay it over again. And alcoholics are good at that. I go in a room and I replay the whole act, the whole scene out again, and hurt myself the second time. Now, this is a replay or a resentment of the wrong that was done to me. Now, it's a funny thing. When I replay it over, I always add a little bit. Make it look... <laughs> you know, we, we don't know we're doing this, but we kind of add a little bit to it. Make it a little worse. And each time we play it over, we blame it on that other person. They didn't do it, but we blame it on them, but we did it. And that's the stupidity of a resentment. And we're going to find out later, it's very enlightening when we find out why we do this. Now, why do we do this? But the more we play it over, the worse it gets, and to find it don't even resemble what really happened. But we don't know that, because we only know the truth as we see it. Humans don't know the truth. We just live in the truth as we perceive it. And sometimes, you know, we perceive lies, but it's the truth to us. And the more we play these things over, the worse they get. And it's a way to be eternally unhappy, because we see ourselves as victims. You know, it's just like a, I always say, it's just like a, a resentment is like a replay machine. I know all y'all, we like to watch the football games. And, and, I, and I love to watch them some Sundays when I'm home. And, I, and when the guy goes down the field and he reaches up for the ball, the guy hits him and just knocks the hell out of him. Sometimes they carry him off the field. Sometimes he keeps on playing. But the old announcer don't like that, you know. The old announcer, he said, let's look at that again. And he's got a resentment machine, you know. He... And when he replays it the second time, it looks a lot worse. Because it's in slow motion and living color, and you can see all that pain and everything. And the more he plays it, the worse it looks. And that's what we alcoholics do. We get up in the morning and we have a replay recorder. And we uh, fine-tune it, clean it up, go out on the world, shine it on the world all day. And we don't record nothing but that bad stuff. We don't record no good stuff. And then we come home at night and turn it on and play it and make ourselves sick. <laughs> and you know, some days we have a bad day. They don't do nothing. That's a bad day. Some days they just won't do nothing to us. And on those days, you know what we do? We record what they're thinking.
We, we, we are good, you know. Ain't nothing worse than a drunk mind reader, you know. <laughs> and that's about as self-centered as you can get when you know what other people are thinking. And, and we, we, we see ourselves as a victim. And we, we, uh, we see ourselves as a failure, and we go out each day to lay ourselves on the altar where people, we can be victimized by other people. And it brings on one of the worst emotional illnesses we can have because resentment is a two-way, it's a two-edged sword. It not only goes out, it comes back. You can't resent another person or another thing until you finally, it comes home and you're going to resent yourself for allowing that to happen. And that's self-pity. Self-resentment or self-pity. That may be our number one offender. No, we alcoholics wear that with a robe of dignity. You know, sometimes we, if we don't have it, we feel sick. And you have a, sometimes we upset when we ain't feeling sorry for ourselves. And you know, if you want to make an alcoholic mad, you try to feel sorry for him. He tell you, that's my damn job. You leave that alone. <laughs> you know, we love to feel sorry for ourselves. And it's internally unhappy. And there is no way that God can direct a life in resentment. You know, we selfish, self-centered people who seem to think that we, are, we run our own lives so much. We have a sense of that we are, we run our own shows, but this is not true. Selfish, self-centered people that travel on resentment, our lives, we don't control our lives. God can't control our lives. Our lives are controlled by the thing we resent. And the only way we can, we have made a decision to turn our will and our lives to the care of God. So the only way we're going to carry out that decision is to get rid of these resentments and let God be the director of our lives. So if we don't get rid of these resentments, we can't carry out the decision in step three. These resentments have to go. You know, I use the illustration I love in the little book. It talks about the illustrations. And I love that illustration about resentments because if we're going to find out what this thing is, it's a trick, it's a shortcut way of living. That's a good way to get trapped. I said it's like a, it's like a shoe that rubs your foot. Sometimes we have an ill-fitting shoe that rubs your foot. And, it, in order for nature's, nature, in order to protect your foot from the shoe, begins to form a callus to protect your foot from the shoe. And then after a while, the callus becomes the problem. And that's the same way resentments. We're going to find out resentments is a shortcut way of living. And then the resentments becomes our problem. So we're going to have to do like the book said. We'll have to get down, and it's a key word back in the, in the here, this, I think, impacts this whole thing. We're not just going to write down our resentments. There's not a lot of advantage of writing down your resentments. Sometimes it'll make you mad. <laughs> but the key thing, one of the key words, I think, in this section of the book is we're going to list and analyze our resentments. Now, analyze means to get down to the truth. Right? And we're going to get down to the truth then the truth will set us free because the resentment is really a lie. We have distorted it 
and we're using it for something. So we're going to get down and analyze and see what we're using those resentments for and to get them out of our minds so we can carry out the decision we made in step three. We are never going to be able to be 100% resentment-free all the time. Resentments are God-given also. They come out of self-will. And anything that God gives has got to be good. The problem is, what do we do with resentments? For instance, if I'm living in the neighborhood, and the old houses are all run down, windows broken, everything needs to be painted, my house is no worse than anybody else's, and I'm sitting on my front porch, and I'm rocking day after day after day, and I'm complacent, and I'm happy with the situation. Now, somebody moves in across the street and buys that house, and he begins to paint it, replace the broken windows, makes it look good, and makes my house look bad. And I say, who in the hell does he think he is? Moving into the neighborhood, screwing up the whole neighborhood. Now, if I use that resentment right toward him, I'll go get some paint and some window panes, and I'll fix my house up. And my neighbor next to me will resent me and fix his house up. And the next thing you know, God's got the whole neighborhood cleaned up. But we alcoholics don't use them right. You know, we would sit there on the front porch and we would rock and rock and resent and resent and rock and rock. And about two weeks later, we go over there about midnight and burn his damn house down. <laughs> now, it's plain that a mind that is filled with resentment, God just can't get in there. He is effectively blocked out of there. All that time that's churning on what they did, what I'm going to do, and I'm going to get even with them, and I, you know, that controls our thinking, which controls our actions, which controls our life. Now, we just made a decision to let God do that. So if we don't get them out of there, then God can't. Now, on page 65, where this thing is filled out, we have given you a sample sheet. And we, will, we want to emphasize, this is not a new inventory guide. You know, we got enough of those in AA already. What you have is page 65 in the blank form. Now, the only difference is we have made four columns on that sheet. If you would take your fourth column, fold it under where you can't see it. We're going to use it a couple pages later. But if you'd fold it under where you can't see it, then you would have three columns. Just like page 65. And the first column would be, I'm resentful at. The second column would be the cause. And the third column would be the self column or effects my. Now what we did in that third column is we divided those columns up based upon the basic instincts of life that Bill talks about. The first column under that third column was the social instincts. And we put two little columns there. One said self-esteem, the other one personal relationships. Those are the same identical words that Bill uses in the big book. Then we took the security instinct and divided that column into two things, material and emotional, same things that Bill uses in the big book. We took the sex instinct column and we added two words to that. 
One of them says acceptable, and the other one says hidden. Now, I can't imagine it, but they tell me that some people in AA have two kinds of sex lives. Bill talks about it. One being the acceptable sex life that society looks at and says, that's okay. For instance, my sex life with my spouse in my home, society looks at that and says, that's, that's all right. But then many of us have a hidden sex life that we really don't want people to see about that. You know, we may have over here on the side a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a pet monkey or a, a favorite dog. Or, you, know, you, you take enough fifth steps, you're amazed at what the hell's over there in that hidden side. Now, if you should in any manner affect or threaten any of those instincts, social security or sex, you're going to make me mad. You're going to upset me. Also, everybody has ambitions for more prestige, more power, more recognition, more security, more sex. And if you threaten my plans for the future, you'll upset me also. So all we've done in column three is use the same things, the same words, and basically the same terms that Bill uses. And we got page 65 in the blank form. Now comes the instructions on how to fill it out, and they are here. They're not numbered one, two, and three, but they are here. And they are so short and so simple that we've overlooked them for years. He said resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we've been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually ill. Put that on the board. When a spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Period. This should lay to rest forever the question of whether it's going to be a mental or a written inventory. If you're going to set them on paper, you've got to have a sheet of paper. A pencil, a pen, a typewriter, a paintbrush, computer, some way to put them on paper. Now, he said we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry, period. The first real instruction is to fill out column one. And we'll fill out column one going from top to bottom. Now, most of us are taught to read and work and write left to right. But if we do that with this inventory, we're going to have to say, what's the resentment, what's the cause, what part of self was affected? And by the time we work that back and forth about three times with three different names, our mind's going in a circle. So what could be more simple than to make a list, starting at the top, people self-explanatory, institutions are those things like the police department, the federal government, the Internal Revenue Service, the post office, the whatever. God, we could just name dozens of them we get upset with. Principles are old, old guiding. I don't like to use the word laws, but I can't think of anything any better. Old guiding laws that, that humankind has known for thousands of years that are always true. For instance, one of them is, what goes up must come down. I've always hated that one. Another one is, what you give out is what you get back. 
Another one is there are no free rides. You'll pay for everything you get. The Ten Commandments are a set of principles. And there's many of those principles that interfered with our style of living, and we didn't like them. So all we do is list the people, the institutions, and the principles with whom we are angry. Now, you don't have to be sober very long to do this. You can do it in just two days if you want to, after you sober up, or a week or a couple of weeks. We don't have to be very smart to do this. All we've got to do is just make a list of names. If we can't write, then we ask somebody to make that list for us, and we feed the names to them. I have yet to see an alcoholic that does not know exactly who and what they are mad at. My God, we spend hours and hours and hours sitting around and talking about it, don't we? All we got to do is take it out of our head, put it on a piece of paper. And when we do that, we have completed Instruction 1, Column 1. And I think we're going to be amazed when we do it. You see, I was one of these guys that said, oh, well, I don't have very many resentments. Oh, yeah, two or three people I don't like. But when I started putting them down on paper, it amazed me. You know, Bill has four shown here on the sheet. Surely he had more than that. He probably didn't want to use any more space in the book. The sheet that we've made for you, you've got eight on there. Now, I'm sure you all could get all yours on that one sheet. <laughs> and I found out I couldn't. Because I filled out that sheet, and I got a second sheet and filled it out, and then I got a third one and filled it out, and then I got a fourth one and filled it out, and I got up to about name 97. And I said, by God, Charlie, you mad at everything. And I was, and I didn't know it. But see, you can only see one thing at a time in your head. And I can only see one resentment at a time in my head. But when I got them down on paper, I was amazed by how many resentments I had. Hell, I was mad all the time at anything that came along didn't make any difference what it was. And for the first time, I realized how much resentment controls my thinking. And if resentment does it, God can't. And I didn't know that till I filled this sheet out. Now I go to the second instruction. We, we ask ourselves why we were angry. In column two, by the side of each name, we write down the cause of the anger. It may be one thing, it may be multiple things. For instance, in Bill's example, he wrote down in column one, Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, and my wife. Then we went back to column two and worked it top to bottom, writing down the cause of the anger, and the reason he's mad at Mr. Brown is because of his attention to my wife. Told my wife of my mistress, and Brown might get my job at the office. You know, I don't blame him. I'd be getting a little upset with Brown about now, too. <laughs> he's mad at Mrs. Jones. She's a nut. She stubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend. She's a gossip. He's mad at the employer. He's unreasonable, unjust, and overbearing. He probably said, Bill, where in the hell were you, Bundy, anyhow? <laughs> he also threatens to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account. Now, that's unreasonable, isn't it? <laughs> He's mad at his wife. She misunderstands and nags, and she likes old Brown, and she wants the house put in her name. Now, you tie together liking Brown and wanting the house put in her name, it's about time to get upset. Very carefully we do this, top to bottom, and I think we'll be amazed when we fill out column two. I suddenly realize it's not those people I'm mad at. It's what they did that's got me upset. 
Now, I could take Mr. Brown out of here and put Mr. Green in. I'd be just as bad at Green as I am Brown if he did the same thing. I could take my wife out of here and put my mistress in, and I'll be just as mad at her if she does the same thing. And I begin to realize it's not really people that's got me upset. It's what they have done that's got me upset. That's going to be valuable for me. I'm going to need that a little bit later on. I have never seen an alcoholic yet that not only did not know who they're mad at, they do exactly why they're mad at them. All we got to do is just take it out of our head, put it down on a piece of paper. Isn't that simple? Now we look at instruction three. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? Now we go to the third column, and there's no way I can be mad at you unless you threaten one of those basic instincts of life. So I go to the first column under self, self-esteem, and I work it from top to bottom. Is it a threat to what I think of myself and what other people think of me? You know, after all, that's what my self-esteem is based on. That's what my ego is based on. What I think of me and what I think other people think of me. Is it a threat to that? If so, I put down a little check mark. And I work that entire column first. And then I go to the personal relationship column. Is it a threat to a personal relationship between me and another human being? If so, I put a check mark there. And then I go to the security column. Is it a threat to material security? If so, I put a check mark. Work that column and then I go to the emotional column. Then I go to the two sex columns. Now, if it's a threat between, for sex between myself and my spouse, that that is socially acceptable, I make a check mark there. And if it's a threat to my hidden sex life, like Bill's got with his mistress over here, I put a check there. You know, and surely in Bill's case here, as he filled out column three, he says he's mad at Brown because of his tension to my wife. Well, that's a threat to sex relations. Acceptable sex relations. Because if the wife find, <coughs> gets to fooling with Brown and finds out Brown's better than he is, chances are she'll cut him off at home. It's also a threat to his self-esteem. What are other people going to think about me if my, Brown, if my wife gets to fooling around with Brown? It becomes common knowledge. He's mad at Brown because he told my wife of my mistress. Now, boy, that's a threat to sex relations. As soon as the wife found out about it, she just cut me off at home. And then she didn't quit there. She went over and got hold of the mistress. And when she got through with the mistress, I've been cut off there, too. <laughs> no sex relations at all. It's also a threat to self-esteem. Here I am living in the neighborhood. I go to work every day and make a living like everybody else and pay my taxes. Saturday afternoon, I take the Boy Scouts out on camping trips. Sunday morning, I teach Sunday school in church. And all of a sudden, this little story about me and my wife and my mistress has become common neighborhood knowledge. Oh, my God, that's a threat to self-esteem. If you don't believe it is, you, you, you ask Jimmy Baker. <laughs> Jimmy will tell you about that in a hurry. Ask James Swaggart or two or three others we've been recently hearing about. 
Very carefully I do this, and as I fill these columns out under that self-esteem, I begin to notice something. I begin to see me maybe filling one of them out with just a repeated number of check marks, and I begin to see that certain parts of self are a real problem for me. Maybe it's my self-esteem that's the problem. Maybe it's my sex life that's a problem. Maybe it's my material security that's a problem. It'll probably be a combination of all, but some will begin to stand out as the real problems. And I begin to learn more and more about me as I fill out that column. And when I fill out the third column, I'm really amazed, because I realize it's not them that's got me upset. It's not what they did that's got me upset. It's my reaction to what they did based upon my own basic instincts alive. That's what's got me upset. For the first time in my life, I see where anger comes from. All my life, I've been an angry person. And all my life, I've hurt other people because of that anger. And always, I've had to go back and apologize and ask for forgiveness and try not to do it, yet I'd keep right on doing it. I never could handle anger because I never knew where it came from. For the first time in my life, I know where it comes from. You can't do anything about a problem until you see the problem. And if I can see that this comes from my own basic instincts of life, then I might be able to do something about it, because I can't do anything about these other people. They're going to do what they want to do whenever they want to do it. And I can move clear across the country to get away from them, and I'll run into some more just like them. The only possibility of me being able to live and be happy and peaceful is to get a handle on this anger thing, these resentments. And for the first time, I see where they come from. And maybe I can do something about them. You know, I know this is true. Now, my wife is a, is a good member of Al-Anon. You know, I just love old Barbie to death. But once in a while, she'll do something that really upsets me. And if I'm right with God and everything's okay in my program, I say, well, the poor old sick thing, that's just the way she is. <laughs> and it'll just slide right off of my back and doesn't bother me at all. Two weeks later, if I'm not right with God and my program has gone a little screwball, she may do the same thing, and I'll just blow my stack and romp and stomp and raise hell and go right through the roof. And I know it's not her. I know it's not what she did. I know it's how I choose to react on any particular given period of time based upon my basic instincts of life. For the first time, I realize that. I've learned three valuable things about me so far. How much I'm angry that it's really not them I'm mad at, that it's what they did. But it's really not what they did, it's how I choose to react to it based on my basic instincts of life. I'm going to use that in just a little while. Joe? We're going to do these, we got the sixth Well, yeah, we'll do that after. <laughs> we have these consultations all the time, you have to excuse us. We've been back to our lives. Okay, nothing counting but thoroughness and honesty. When we sit, when we, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparently the world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude the world was wrong as far as we ever got. The usual outcome was people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. A moment of triumph was short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to fertility and unhappiness. 
to the precise extent that would permit these to be squandered the hours that might have been worthwhile. I read that and I stopped, and I tried to look back in my life to see how much time I had squandered in resentments. And one of my favorite things when I, when I was drinking was to get up early in the morning, have a cup of coffee and a drink of whiskey, and turn on my resentment replay machine and replay what she did to me yesterday, what he did last week, what they did last month, and what some others did a year ago, and what this fellow did five years ago, and what they did ten years ago, and I'll play and play and play, and I could spend a full hour doing that, and I just love to do it. And when that tape would run out, I would have another drink of whiskey, another cup of coffee, and then I would turn on my get-even machine. <laughs> now, the next time they do that, I'm going to say this, and they're going to say that, and I'm going to do this, and, and I'm going to put it on them, and they're not going to treat me that way, and I could spend another hour doing that. And I just loved to do it. Now, after I got sober, I found out the only difference was I'd get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, no drink of whiskey, and turn on the replay resentment machine and run those tapes just like I was before, except I'm just not drinking now, to the best of my recollection, I can't see how any resentment has ever done me any good. It sure never did make me any money. It sure never straightened up a relationship with another human being. It only made it worse. It sure didn't make me feel better. It only made me feel worse and worse and worse. And I've wasted literally thousands of hours in resentments. And I don't know about you, but I know about me, and if I've got a good resentment churning in my head, then I'm paralyzed. I can't do anything worthwhile when I'm dealing with one of those resentments. And as far as I can see, that time has been absolutely wasted. Now, as a human being, I'm only allowed to live so many hours on the face of the earth anyhow. And I love to feel good. I never felt good before. And I love this way of living, and I love to feel good, and I'm not going to waste any more of my time in resentments if I can possibly keep from it. That's a bad deal and a bad waste of time. But that isn't the main problem with resentments. Here's the main problem with a resentment. That with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the Spirit. Our mind is blocked off from God's will. Now, blocked off from God's will, we don't feel good. And the mind begins to search for a sense of ease and comfort. And after a while, it goes back to the idea of taking a drink. Insanity returns. We believe we can drink, and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. See, that's why you've got to have a written inventory. If you had a mental inventory, you would already have lost it. With the written inventory, I can now go back and look at that list again. And we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle this time. When I first wrote them down, I looked at it to see what they had done to me. Now I'm looking at it to see what is a resentment doing to me. And if it blocks me off from God's will, and it causes me to drink, then it's going to kill me. That's what it's going to do to me. And I have found that it doesn't make any difference whether it's justified or unjustified. Both of them block me off from God's will. 
And a justified resentment will kill me just as fast as an unjustified resentment will. I begin to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others fancied or real had power to actually kill. I read that and I stopped and I thought, oh, Charlie, how can you be so dumb? I'm the guy that's always been proud all of my life that I stood on my own two feet. Nobody told me what to do. I made my own decisions, and I ran my own show, and suddenly I realized that other people have had control of my thinking as far back as I can remember through my resentments toward them. And if they're controlling my thinking, and they're controlling my decisions, and they're controlling my life, then they have always done so, and I always thought I had control. And for the first time I realized I never have had control. Other people have always dominated me through those resentments. And about the time I realized that, I said, oh, it can't possibly be any worse. Because some of these people have been dead and buried in a graveyard for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And they've been reaching out from the grave and they've had me by the yang-yang as far back as I can remember controlling my life. And when I realized that, I said, I'm not going to let those people live in my head rent-free anymore. I want them out of there. I want God to direct my thinking. I don't want a resentment from my grandfather to control my life today. I don't want something that came from my great-grandfather to control me today. I don't want something that mother did to me or daddy did to me or brother did to me when I was growing up to control me today. They've already hurt me enough. And if I leave them up there, they're going to continue to hurt me and they're going to block me off from God's will, and they're going to cause me to drink. And when I saw that, I said, how could I escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. You know, they come from self-will. They're God-given things, and only God can take them away. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Oh, this is hard to do. <laughs> now, in order for me to get rid of some of these resentments, I might have to pray for those people I resent. Bill said in his story, Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. I hear over and over and over and over again about the third-step prayer and the seventh-step prayer. I never hear about a fourth-step prayer. And I may have to pray for some of these people I resent. Joe?